Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stone Dave Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the help of psychedelics. In this episode, I spoke with Anders about his journey through addiction recovery. It is a deep conversation about addiction, plant medicines, shadow work, and finding a way to be true to yourself on your path in life. Anders now guides others with his Ibogaine counseling services. You're going to enjoy this one, so let's welcome Anders. Anders, thank you so much for for being here on the Stone Ape Reports. Um, you and I have interacted a little bit out there on the internet, and so I, I have a little bit of understanding of what you do, but I'd like to kind of just start here and ask you what your uh, your Stone Ape story is. You know, what's your origin story? What what were you dealing with in life? Your, your challenges, uh. and you know, I know it, there's certain matters going on and, and maybe addictions, and then you found, you know, the plant medicine to help you. So if you could yeah. Maybe shed a little bit of light on your kind of what we call your origin story or your stone Dave story. Yeah, sure. No, no problem. And, and thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, my, my, my story kind of goes back to, to, to early childhood. Um, you know, at quite a young age, I felt sort of bullied. I felt put upon. I had a lot of negativity hammered into me. Um, I learned quite early uh, not to love myself or respect myself. And um, then I suppose for a good 40 or so years, I kind of looked externally outside myself to fix myself in any way I could. Um, And what I mean by that is that, you know, I didn't have the tools to to either respect or love myself in any way. so by the time I reached my early 20s and I was feeling incredibly inauthentic, I really just didn't know who I was. Um, you know, I, I kind of looked in all of the normal places. I thought, well, you know, if I get this job, I'll be okay. Or if I get this girl, I'll be fine. Or if I live in this town, I'll be fine. And, and nothing really worked for me. Mm-hmm. It was all quite disastrous for me. And then I found drugs, and it was like, oh, fantastic. Mm. You know, I feel complete. I feel confident. I feel like I can talk to the girls at the bar. I feel like I can hold my own with the boys. Um, and actually, the drugs, to begin with, made me feel very, 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 very normal. Mm. Um, and I struggled. I mean, you know, I look at drugs as one way, you know, sort of, if you kind of look at addiction to begin with, um, when you pick up drugs, if it makes you feel better, if it makes you feel complete, to pick up a drug is a perfectly intelligent and acceptable adaptive response to the pain you're in at the time. And I really do believe that if I hadn't found drugs when I found drugs, that feeling of inauthenticity that I was carrying would have been enough for me to perhaps done something really stupid to myself. Mm. That was the pain I was in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, where I'd like to go with this is, is that, you know, if you could imagine that the drugs opened a door to a world where you feel kind of safe, but after a few months or a few years or a few decades, that door turns into a revolving door. And the drugs don't work for you. Mm. And then you're left in a country. You're, you're left in this place where, well, hell, I, I've really got to fix myself. I've really got to do the work. Um, 
And I suppose that's what happened with me. After having tried every rehab, every detox, every new relationship, every new job, every new country, every new continent to try and fix myself, um, I was kind of left on stage empty, age 45, with a big light shining on me. I had no more new hats to wear, no more new jobs, no more new relationships. So I was left naked on the stage uh, with this big arc light shining on me. And I just had to look at myself. And what happened was that I began, came into my life at that time, and a fantastic provider who kind of made sure that I, I had the right type of Ibogaine journey. And all of a sudden, I was able to look at the darkness within me. I, I was able to look at my shadow. And, and the interesting thing about the shadow is that the shadow is not the bad part of us. It's not the dodgy part of us. It's not the part of us we should be running away from or subjugating or denying or self-medicating. The shadow is actually the rejected part of ourselves, which we had to reject in childhood to be able to survive that environment in childhood. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, my story is is one of trying every modality of recovery. <laughs> yeah. Every modality of trying to find myself and, and failing at all of them. Um, I think what worked for me, and this is, you know, how I continue my work now, is that I began, was the only modality of recovery that I could get into where I could own the narrative. I could own my recovery. I hadn't handed it over to the 12 steps or NA or CA or AA. I hadn't handed it over to my psychotherapist or my mm. psychiatrist or my girlfriend or my father or my mother. It was my journey. It was my rite of passage. It was me putting intentionality, integrity, respect, and reverence into that process. And by dint, putting respect, reverence, intentionality, and integrity into my life, perhaps for the first time ever. So, wow. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so how did, how did that... And I don't know if you're at that point yet, but, you know, we, and we don't want to go into necessarily a trip report with all the details. It's like listening to somebody's mm -hmm. dream. But, um, you know, how, how did it, all this stuff you tried, all the detox and all the rehab and the 12-step programs and therapists and friends, yeah. and how was your Ibogaine journey different and what was it like when you came out of it? Well, I mean, I suppose, you know, look, for, for, for me, and I'm not saying this is for, for everybody because I don't want yeah. to be political about NA or AA. But for me, I was in and out of the rooms for years and years. And eventually, that the narrative came to me that I was an addict and I have to be an addict for the rest of my life. I was told mm. I was diseased. Um, I was told I was a burden on my friends, family, and society. Um, I was told that I wasn't to be trusted with my own thinking. And because I wasn't to be trusted with my own thinking, I had to get a sponsor to help me do my thinking. And all of my thinking will then be based around 12 steps and 12 traditions. And if I don't connect to these 12 steps and 12 traditions for the foreseeable future, most of my life, and if I don't work through all the work that has been set for me, um, I will end up in jail, institutional debt. And I've got to be grateful 
for that. And I tried the rooms for many, many, many years, and I just didn't feel like I owned the narrative in any way. I felt like I'd handed over my recovery to an outside agency, and it just wasn't healthy for me. Now, for wow. some people it works, but for me it didn't. Um, for me, this idea of the NA and AA narrative, for me, and I, I struggled really, really hard, and most of the rehabs you've got to understand are 12-step 12, uh, 12 based. And for me, these were very subjugating, dehumanizing, accusatory, negative narratives exactly the same narratives that got me into addiction in the first place, just wrapped up in a different bullshit. Wow. So when it came to doing Ibogaine, it was my opportunity to own my recovery and find my narratives of recovery and feel empowered by that. Yeah. Uh, and, and Ibogaine gave that to me in a massive way. Um, so the story I'd like to tell you was about um, how I began spoke to me. And I mean, there's two ways it's spoken to me in a very, very profound way. But I'll start with the first one, which was on the first I began journey I took. In the end of my using, I was using a lot of cocaine, a lot of crack. Um, I was self-isolating. I was really, really hating myself. <laughs> And I'd be hiding away in a room which was getting ever, ever smaller. The walls were shrinking. The ceiling was coming down on me. Life was getting more and more painful, more and more difficult. And I'm just abusing myself. And I always felt that my grandparents had all passed on and looking down on me going, oh, God, boy, what a low life you've become. Oh, oh my God. God, I can't believe that you've done this to yourself. And I take Ibogaine, and the first people I meet are my grandparents. Hmm. And they're dressed up in their Sunday best. My grandmothers are looking elegant and beautiful with their handbags. My grandparents, my grandfathers are wearing suits. And my first instant, instant thought was, my God, they look really, really well-dressed. They look, they're all in their, all their finery. They must be at a wedding or they must be going to meet somebody important. And they were. They were going to come to meet me. Mm. And I was shocked by that. And I felt that I had to humble myself towards my grandparents immediately. And I got down on my knees and I was about to say, sorry. And my grandfather put his hand on my head. And he said, Anders, don't worry. This is your process. You've done nothing wrong. Wow. And at that moment, that rucksack of shame that I have been carrying with me for 20, 25 years, it was the first time I was able to take that weight off my shoulders and put it down on the ground. Wow. So, and as we all know, that you know, anybody who's been in addiction is that the, 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 the greatest food for your addiction, the greatest nourishment for your addiction is a narrative of shame. Mm. Yeah. That's the voice that we talk to ourselves with the whole time. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that's a conditioned voice as well that's a, that's a voice which is fostered upon us as children that we're not good enough you know, we, get, we generate these feelings of shame and negativity around ourselves and these are what we carry into adult life and these are what we, we, we self-medicate against so to be able to put down the biggest cross 
the heaviest rucksack within the first 30 seconds of Ibogaine. Wow. wow. Fantastic. <laughs> that Fantastic. was right at the beginning of the journey, huh? Like right away. That was a, that, that, yeah, absolutely. That was my introduction to Ibogaine. Um, wow. And I, then I think, you know, the, the, the other one, which was really, really powerful for me, and I, I, I've got to stress that everybody has different journeys and that um, Ibogaine really is the master teacher in many ways. And I went and did an Iboga ceremony. And uh, I went and saw the facilitator who, who's actually a Bwiti Naganga. And he said, you know, what, what intentionality do you want to put into this journey? And I said, well, you know, I want to look at my irritability and anger because I'm quite, I'm still quite an irritable and quite an angry person. Mm. So he said, yeah, sure. You know, so we went there and I took the iboga and I sat down and then suddenly the ibogaine started to, or the iboga started to attack me. And you go, oh, you useless piece of shit. What are you doing here? How dare you come and ingest iboga? How dare you go in to do the work you're doing? You're weak. You're pathetic. You're about two minutes for relapsing. And I'm there going, wow, <laughs> this is not how iboga works. Iboga doesn't attack the individual. And then the voice in my head would go, Yes, but you're so special and so pathetic and so weak and so yeah. appalling that Iboga's taking a, an exception for you. <laughs> and this voice went on and on and on. And I had my back to the ceremony at one point and the voice started and I could feel myself shaking and I could feel myself convulsing because it was so painful to, to be attacked in this way. Yeah. And the Iboga said to me, look at you, you pathetic human being. You're, you're nothing. You can't even face the ceremony. Look at you in fetal position with your back to the ceremony. You're pathetic. And then I suddenly realized it wasn't the Iboga talking to me. Yeah. The Iboga was showing me how I talk to myself. Wow. And in the instant I made that epiphany, the Iboga sort of said, ah, great. You've got the lesson you needed to learn. Let me take you around the universe for a joyride. <laughs> it, wow. it kind of gave me, yeah, it was, it was definitely stick and carrot at the same time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but these are my stories. I mean, they're very, 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 very different for everybody. But, you know, these two extraordinarily powerful stories for me, they really, really started to change the way that I thought about myself and, and the way I behaved towards myself. And I became far more considerate and kind and also very aware that when these voices come up, they're not necessarily my own, but they're the inauthentic voices which were fostered upon me in childhood. Wow. And it just it showed it to you in such a dramatic fashion. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this, this is, you know, years and years of psychotherapy done in one night. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah. incredible. And I hate to make light of it, but that second journey, you must have been looking around like, can I talk to my grandparents again, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it was kind of, kind of just wonderful to know that they're still around. Mm. They're not gone. 
that yeah, they're powerful. with us, um, that I will see them again, that they are part of my life, that, you know, they are part of my children's life and part of my grandchildren's life. I mean, I really got this sense of ancestral lineage. Yeah. And really got this sense of family protecting me and being with me and, and, and looking out for my best interests, even though they've passed on. Hmm. Yeah, that's big. It's better to have that, that support out there than all these negative voices in your head. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the great thing about Ibogaine is that it, it, it lets you get to know who you are rather than who you are trying to be. Hmm. <laughs> if, that, if you follow that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's um, really excellent. You know, th- this is what it's about. And I think, you know, for me, th- this is what, what the work is, is, you know, it, it is kind of shadow work in many ways. Um, and you know, when you say shadow work, what do you mean by, by shadow work? I know you, you, you mentioned it and, you know, talked about it not being a a negative bad part of your psyche, but you know, when you talk about shadow work, what, what do you mean by that? Well, let's say, let's put it this way, that if, if you're young and you have this negativity hammered into you and, you know, let's say you come home from school every day and you get shouted and screamed at and you think to yourself, well, you know what? I'm not good enough as I am. Um, I better change who I am. I better start becoming an actor and I better become an actor really quickly so I can fit in, fit in, in the environment I'm in. Hmm. Okay. So you start to pretend it doesn't hurt you or you pretend you're tough or, um, you work out a way of isolating and you do this at the detriment of your own authentic personality. Yep. Um, so basically what you do is repress parts of your psyche to be able to survive the environment you're in. Hmm. And for me, shadow work is about reconnecting to those rejected parts of your psyche. It's reconnecting to that rejected child in you. So therefore, um, you know, shadow work is not about connecting to your dark side or your shadowy side. It's about connecting to the rejected, frightened child inside you. And that rejected, frightened child inside you, if it's given love and compassion and empathy and it's heard and it's seen and it's respected, it holds a whole deep seam of intellect and curiosity and fun that you don't have in your life. Mm. Yeah. So young Pueblo talks about this idea. And I have to paraphrase him here. But he says, I don't believe that people are addicted to coke, crack, or heroin. What they are addicted to is filling the void they feel in their chest with anything other than self love. Mm. Um, now, what can be more loving? What can be more compassionate than somebody doing the shadow work? and looking after the rejected child within them. That's yeah, how yeah. you fill the hole that young Pueblo is talking about. Interesting. I never heard it put that way. Um, so when you came out of these, these ceremonies, I don't know if they were mm-hmm. close, close together or if these were spread out, but you know, you went into this with 
these, these voids to fill that you were filling with substances, you know, when you came back out of these and, and went back into the normal world, how, how did that transition go? And, and how did your recovery go from that moment on for you? Well, it, it, it's kind of weird. So um, the way I'd like to explain it is through, through what I'd call the metaphorical cooking pot. Okay. Mm. Um, now, for example, I've spoken today about maybe picking up drugs for the first time as a perfectly intelligent and acceptable adaptive response to pain. Um, so that's an ingredient for my metaphorical cooking pot. That makes sense to me. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, that's my story. And then maybe, you know, another ingredient is that I've learned early not to love or respect myself and I've had negativity hammered into me. And so yeah, sure, I'm not going to be myself because I've always been trying to be something else. And that makes sense to me. So I put that ingredient into my metaphorical cooking pot. Mm. And it, I think it's this sort of philosophical journey to find out who you are and why you're an addiction and what you can do about it. And the more you understand yourself, the more authentic you become. Yeah. Okay? So if you keep putting ingredients into the metaphorical cooking pot, whether it be work by Eckhart Tolle or Ken Wilber or, or I don't know, Alan Watts, and you keep that search and every time you keep looking for what makes sense to you, what is your story? And you put all of those ingredients into that pot very, very quickly, you begin to get a very complex and rich recipe that belongs to you. It doesn't belong to NA, doesn't belong to AA, doesn't belong to your mother, you're your father, it belongs to you. And if you start supping out of that, you feel really pretty good about yourself. Hmm. The problem with most addicts is they're holding a great big dirty spoon in their hands and they're still eating out of their mother's recipe. They're still eating out of NA's recipe. They're still eating out of cultures and society's recipes. They haven't found their own recipe. They haven't found their own language. They haven't found their own narrative. They haven't found their own philosophy about themselves. Yeah. So this is where the real work is done. Um, and to be honest, that is, that requires action. And as Gabor Mate clearly says, you know, self-compassion is not a gooey feeling. It's not an emotion. It's about doing the right thing for yourself or doing the right thing for your traumatized inner child. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so for me, rather than doing holotropic breathing and yoga for four hours a day, uh, you know, maybe just making your bed in the morning and grinding your own coffee beans is a really profound act of self-compassion to begin with. So what I recommend to my clients is to start changing bad ritual, which would be taking drugs and self-sabotaging and hurting themselves exchanging that for good ritual and good ritual doesn't need to be a burden. So you, that's a good transition. So you talk about your clients, you know, we've talked about your transition and the mm -hmm. childhood trauma and how you filled the holes, mm -hmm. the voids and mm -hmm. then went back and, and worked on it. You do this now, you help other people work through the same things. Yeah. I help other people you know, so people who come to me, essentially what they do, they go, they go shopping with me. <laughs> 
that's how I'd like to describe it. So they tell me the what's been going on with them. Yeah. And I go here, look at Ken Wilber, look at Eckhart Tolle, look at Carl Rogers, look at, I don't know, whoever, Jonathan Bowlby. Um, does any of this make sense to you? Whatever makes sense to you, whatever feels right to you, whatever feels like your story, you put that into the pot. I'm not going to tell you what to put in the pot, but I'm going to take you to the right places to go shopping. Nice. To find those ingredients. And so, and so do, you, do you have a, do you have a, a website or, or a business or something that you want to share and, and discuss? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my, my, my business is called, uh com, and it's got a it's got a hyphen between ibegain and counseling and it and it's spelt the english way which is double l counseling okay i'll put a link to that um, on the blog thank you very much and i i work with you know five or six of the top ibegain providers worldwide and plant medicine practitioners worldwide um and invariably most of these providers will send their clients to me before before people do their plant medicines to start that process of loving yourself that process yeah. of putting intentionality integrity respect and reverence into the process of taking the plant medicines um the important thing is is that if people put intentionality integrity respect and reverence into getting their ibogaine treatment what they're actually doing is actually putting intentionality, integrity, respect, and reverence into themselves. Wow. And that's the game changer. And so they come to you before the experience, yeah. you know, because yeah. before we started recording this, you and I talked a little bit about how you mentioned right now, the big thing in the psychedelic community is, is integration where you have your experience and then you take the lessons and you integrate them into your lives. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're mentioning here that there's a really big component that comes before the, the ceremony and the experience. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think if we look at, sort of the basis of of what integration is and integration has been done after the plant medicine experience it's a reaction yep mm -hmm. so you do the plant medicine thingy bob and then you have a massive argument with your wife or, or your, your husband and you've got to learn to react to that situation past the ceremony did, did you understand where i'm coming from here whereas if we do the work beforehand and we call out where your pain comes from and why you react like that. And you begin to understand how your conditioning um, kind of forms the way you behave with people. If you have an understanding of that before you do the plant medicines, that when the things happen, when, when life gets difficult after your plant medicine experience, you can be proactive in, 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 in your response to, 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 to triggers and difficulties. Yeah. You don't have to just, you know, deal with it in the moment. You've dealt with a lot of the work beforehand. Yeah. So suddenly, you know, my clients might come to me. I get them to name their inner child. I get them to name their pain body and I get them to give it a name like Bob or Roger or whatever. Um, so that's a conciliatory gesture to the child within to the pain body, to the shadow, is to give it a name, yeah? Mm. Because it's, it's a polite, nice thing to do. You're not running away from it. You're not denying it. You're not subjugating it anymore. You're trying to build a relationship with it so it can work with you. 
it's yin wow. and yang lying in the perfect circle. Yeah. Um, so, you know, a, a client might phone me up two months after having done Ibe again and they go, wow, Anders, you know, I've really mucked up. I had a line of coke last night. I go, fantastic. This is great. Hmm. This is what I want to hear. You're phoning me up. You're not denying it. You're not in a crack house in Phoenix at the moment. You're doing well. What's the problem? So how did you give yourself permission? How did you get triggered? How did that work? How did Bob, your pain body, run that narrative? And so then, you know, suddenly making a mistake is no longer a mistake. It, it's, it's a potential to project yourself forward, to, to propel yourself forward in a really, really, really massive way. Because no longer are you being shaming of yourself no longer you've been critical of yourself now you see yourself as a perfect imperfect human being and i think this is the really really important thing and this this comes down to you know big cultural societal religious narratives if we break it down at a later date but i say to my clients the whole time that the perfect human being is imperfect. They are chaotic and crazy and they march to a different beat and thank God they do. Yes. The imperfect human being is the one who chases perfection, whose perfection is a cultural mirage put in place to control you, to make you buy shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that robs us of authenticity when we're constantly trying to chase these mirages of perfection what marketing and advertising gurus have put into place what churches have said is to be the perfect life what education says to be the perfect way of doing it it's all forms of control at the end of the day so i say celebrate your imperfections because that's what makes you human yeah that that's beautiful that's beautiful and that's what you help your clients do. What, what else do you want to? What else do you want to get out there? What else do you want to share with people? Um, that actually, you know, addiction and pain can be the gift. It can be the gift that brings you to a place where you can do the work on yourself, and you can get to know who you really are, and you can unburden yourself from the cultural, societal, and familial narratives that have been put upon you as a way of living your life. You know, the, these, these narratives are the very things that allow us to be inauthentic. How do we connect to ourselves where we're constantly being molded and changed and distorted by the people around us? And often with great love. I'm not saying that people are doing it intentionally, but we lose our way along the way. Yeah. We don't know who we are as a result of it. You know, living in, living in the modern world is really, 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 really tough. It's really difficult. And, you know, people who march to a different beat are castigated and denied. And, you know, we, we do this at a very, very, very young age. We do this at school. But if you've got a child who is happy-go-lucky and they're not sitting down in the class as they should do aged five the parents they're going to be called in and said well you know your, your, your child's not sitting down it's not doing the right thing and we're already trying to mold the child we're already trying to take away its authentic personality and its character so it can sit in a bloody classroom <laughs> yeah yeah 
And so the whole, it's like kind of wraps around your original points. You were feeling yeah. lost. You didn't know who you were in life. You were being told these negative mm-hmm. stories. You know, there are things out there in the world that are meant to quote, help us from mm-hmm. churches to 12 step programs, therapists that just give us more messages to pile onto our shoulders. But when you're, yeah, when you to keep up. This, and you're able to break through all this and really discover who you are and stay on your centered path, that's when you can really yeah. start making changes in your life. Is, do I got that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so trauma addiction might be the very vehicle that brings you to a place where you can do that work. Awesome. So awesome. in many ways, in many ways, it's your friend. Yeah. Yeah. I can it's, see that. See, see, the thing is, is addiction is never the problem. The addiction is the symptom of an underlying problem. And that underlying problem, 100% of my clients always comes down to childhood trauma of some type or another. Yeah. Whether it's trauma of a capital T or a small t, um, that's invariably the problem. Well, it's not invariably. It is the problem every single time. Um wow. You know, I've never had a client that when it comes down to it, there's been, you know, trauma at the, at, at, at the bottom of it. Um, and, you know, there is so much pressure put on our children to be a certain way, to do certain things and to be um, a valuable and good and productive member of society or your family or your church or whatever, um, where, where do these children find their own way when they're completely and utterly from the minute they wake up in the morning to the minute they go to bed, they're being molded by external forces. Which sounds almost like its own trauma. If they, if they can't be centered and focused. And it doing is. Their own That's thing, trauma. Yeah. yeah, it almost sounds like it's own. They're building that trauma right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I suppose the work that we do in conjunction, because you know, the, the, the great thing about plant medicines is that they change the neuroplasticity in your mind or in your head. They mm-hmm. really aid that, so you can start thinking in a different way. You can start behaving in a different way. You can start to become mindful and to observe your pain body, you can observe Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Bob. So, so for me, you know, I, I, I occasionally get these clients and they come in and they go, oh, Anders, you know, I, I, I don't want to do IBG. I mean, thinking about it, the costs of this and uh, my wife's not keen on me doing it. And, you know, I may not know who I am at the end of it. And all of these fears come up and I can go, well, Hey, Hey, am I am I talking to Stuart or am I talking to Bob? Mm. And they go, Oh yeah, you're right. Mm. I'm in my pain body. I'm not being myself. Yeah. So it's such an automatic response for us to go to our pain body, to yeah. go to our bad wolf, to go to our Bob. Yeah. But that's the inauthentic voice. That's not the real us. That's the us that has been created and formulated and molded by other people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in this work that you do and in your story, Ibogaine, um, other plant medicines, Mm -hmm. have you had to deal with any kind of stigma or pushback from people in your lives when you, when you talk about these things? Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, even kind of like my own family, you know, when I, when I was doing Ibogaine to begin with and this sort of mumbo jumbo witchcraft bullshit you're doing, 
Um, the fact is, is, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years down the line, they see that I'm not living in abject poverty. I'm not hating yeah. myself anymore, that I've got a good life. You know, some of the very people who were criticizing me a few years ago, are the very people who are coming to me now and going, hey, I really want what you've got. Can you help me? Hmm. Um, yeah. And to be honest, I'm kind of like, you want to judge me? You judge me. Go ahead. It's it's no skin off my nose. That's your conditioning. <laughs> right. I respect that. I see that. That's not your fault necessarily. <laughs> right. That's yeah. that's compassion right there. Having some compassion for them, not not letting that, knowing that that's not you. But then it must be pretty special later on when they come back and see the the great work you've done. Yeah. I mean, it, it's. It's the most fantastic job in the world because what we see is I came from a world when I was in active addiction and I, I was losing friends by the bucket loads. We, we were burying people almost on a monthly yeah. basis. Um, and, you know, people were going through divorce. They were losing their children. They were sleeping rough. They didn't know where the next food come from. They were stealing. They were doing anything to, to, to stop that conditioned voice in their head, which would bully them and subjugate them the whole time. Um, and then sort of being attached to modalities of treatments which are the acceptable treatments as far as Western medical culture is concerned, whether it be the rooms or, or detox or rehabs or getting people onto methadone or all things. I mean, insanity. Um, and then you see people coming along and doing Ibogaine and, you know, they can be, you know, in absolutely dire straits and they're beginning to get their life back almost immediately. They're beginning mm. to respect themselves. They're beginning to love themselves. They're beginning to care for themselves again. They're beginning to find their own narratives. Um, and then you meet them two to three years down the line and suddenly they're engaged or their girlfriend's pregnant or they're buying a house or they're getting a car. Then, mm. you know, they're feeling happy and they're feeling connected and they feel like they have a role. Fantastic. Yeah. Powerful. gratifying, beautiful work. So I have been gifted the best work in the world. I love what I do. Even though, I love it too. Yeah, and even though there's a lot of heartache attached to it as well. Yeah. But I suppose the thing is, is that in many ways, we, ca we, can't, we can't kind of live our lives by the outcomes of how our clients do. We can just try our best. But yeah, you get, to, you get to see the, the highs and the lows and mm. all of it. But, but knowing that, that people are, like you mentioned before, the, the, the integrity and the self-respect that, that they're putting yeah. back into those voids must be, must be pretty rewarding. Yeah, and I think this is a very important thing to talk about, actually, is that, you know, we, we don't think that the IPGAIN journey just finishes, you know, the work. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I always recommend my clients to do further work with 5-MEO or mushrooms or whatever. And you say to them, well, you know, if you do another three or four um, experiences over the next year or 18 months, um, it can only benefit you. Um, 
and you know, so the client three or four months after doing ibogaine, they do some magic mushrooms, and three or four months after that, they they get into cambo or they get into something, and then suddenly, you know, eighteen months has passed. They've done ibogaine uh, once, they've done iboga once, they've done five meo, they've done mushrooms, and they're really beginning to, you know, find who they are. Um, what they've done is actually put intentionality, integrity, respect, and reverence into the process mm. of taking these medicines. And as I said before, by dint, they've put respect, reverence, intentionality, and integrity into looking after themselves for an extended period. And that feels fucking great yeah. <laughs> to anybody when they go, kind of, wow, I've been looking after myself for 18 months. This is incredible. <laughs> that is <laughs> Who awesome. is this? Who am yeah. I? <laughs> That's that's the whole key. Wow. That's the whole key. Yeah. That's the whole key. And it's their uh, journey. Yeah. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Yeah, Yeah. precisely. They own it. They own it. it. And that's that's the secret. You own your recovery, you'll get it. If you hand over your recovery to somebody else, the chances are that you'll be hanging on by the skin of your teeth. Wow. Feeling inauthentic, feeling angry, feeling upset. And not having the things that you used to self-medicate yourself with. <laughs> right. Wow. Who wants to be a dry drunk? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want well, that. I suppose it's be, it's, it, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying who wants to be a dry drunk. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound disparaging to that, but no, I do I know think you... it comes back to ownership at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. I mean, Anders, I really, uh, I really appreciate everything that you have shared here today. It's some really, really powerful stuff, your own story and all the good that you're doing for everybody out there. Like I said, I'm going to put the links out there on the website and make sure everybody can find you because I know a lot of people who listen are going to, going to want some help. So I, I can't thank you enough. For yeah, there are some really, really good people. There's some really decent people working in the plant medicine community. Um, and, you know, it's been, been the absolute game changer in my life. I have met some of the most beautiful souls and the most beautiful people as a result of working in this industry. So it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, you know, understanding the work you do and how important it is. So thank you so much for having me on. It has been absolutely my pleasure, Andrews. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. That concludes this edition of the Stoned Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.